This episode is brought to you by Catalyst. Catalyst combines beautiful design with modern technology to provide the most powerful customer success platform, helping companies reduce churn and improve customer experience at scale. They also create and post relevant and hilarious startup memes every day. So check them out on LinkedIn or at catalyst.io. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Unapologetic Tech, a podcast dedicated to amplifying women of color. I am super excited to in- introduce to you Elizabeth Leiba, the founder of Black History and Culture Academy and the author of I'm Not Yelling. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I'm happy. I- Oh my goodness. This has been one of my favorite like moments to record and like have you on. I know we, we spoke briefly. I think it was like three weeks ago, maybe like two weeks ago. We had never met each other. Um, I have been stalking your profile. I knew your book was coming out. And I was like, this woman is dope. Like I, I want to figure out like how to engage with her and have her tell her story. We were supposed to have a 30 minute just like overview of what your topics could be. We were on the phone, I think, for like an hour. An hour, at least an, an hour. hour. Yeah, I think so. Going in and I was like, man, if we can have this type of conversation on Sundays at brunch time, my whole week would always be set up for success because it was real. It was, you know, off- authentic. It was organic. But we really talked about what it feels like to, you know, be woke in America and navigate this world we call life and really crush the workforce despite all of the microaggressions, the gaslighting, and no matter how far you go, like being able to truly like use your voice. So I want to kick into it and, and start first off with how did you create and write the book, I'm Not Yelling? How did that even come about? Oh, wow. That's such a good question. And it was an evolution. It literally happened by nature of me being on LinkedIn starting in 2020. And this is probably the very beginning of the story, which was that I wasn't setting out to be an influencer or a thought leader or social justice advocate. In 2020, it was just kind of like new year, new me. 2020, it sounded like a time to get on LinkedIn, do some networking. I wasn't actively looking for a job because I have been at my job. It's been like almost a decade now. So at that point I had been at my job, but it was really more like, let me get more into the professional side of my work. I work as an instructional designer. I had gotten promoted to director. So I felt like I just needed to be a little bit more polished because I came from a faculty role. I really am not formally or officially trained in instructional design. It's something that I learned because I was uh, so so deeply involved with online learning in the very beginning at University of Phoenix, like in the early 2000s. So because of that, I have a unique perspective about online learning because of the fact that I worked in non-traditional schools and online schools for the majority of my career. So 2020 was this that year and then pandemic. Then George Floyd was murdered. I had just started a, a podcast about higher education just from meeting people on LinkedIn. And at that point, I said, you know what? Podcasting seems a little bit frivolous right now. The whole country is in an uproar. We just witnessed a brutal murder of a man in front of our faces. And a lot of us can't even get on Zoom calls because we can't explain to our boss why we're so triggered and why this was so hurtful. So at that point, I think one of my podcast hosts, who's like an Italian white guy from the from upstate New York, he was like, but people are starting to listen to you. Maybe you should actually take that and, and use that to your advantage because 
we're starting to get traction on the podcast. And that's literally what I started to do. I was feeling so frustrated. I was feeling so lost. I was feeling so hopeless that I just started posting on LinkedIn. And I posted every day, sometimes multiple times a day for two years straight because I was just so exhausted by the idea that how was it that me being an immigrant, I'm from UK, was raised in South Florida, but I was born in London and I understood that the the racial turmoil and the black experience in America was not something that was unusual when people were saying, this is not America. I was like, well, if you've ever cracked open a history book, this actually is very much America. And it was frustrating to me that you had people that I had been networking with that I actually respected your leaders in organizations, your hiring managers, your people that are intelligent. You can see it because it's not even like a Facebook or Twitter where it's like, okay, this is just some random person that's not informed. I'm looking at your background experience and your task with leading the direction of some of the major corporations across the country. And you don't know that racism is deeply embedded in the structure and history of America. That was very scary to me. So that was why I really was very adamant about my role as a professional educator of educating, right? LinkedIn is for education because people are there to better themselves. And my role as an educator, I felt like was I'm not going to campus, but I can surely make LinkedIn my classroom. And I was feeling frustrated and I felt like I needed to do what I'm trained to do, which is teach people. And I just started doing that. The book evolved out of the idea that it was a unique experience that kept being shared by Black women. And the Black women that I was speaking with, that I was networking with, that I was getting to know as I started to leverage my voice and talk about Black history and culture, just were having so many different unique experiences that were particular to our community that were not even really grounded in the overall Black experience, but very particular to the intersectionality of gender and race, which Kimberly Crenshaw actually talked about in the 70s, which is that Black women are particularly impacted by racial inequity because we not only have the racial aspect of ourselves, but we also have gender inequity to also deal with and, and, and navigate when we go into predominantly white spaces, spaces that don't look like us. So a lot of those stories of microaggression, a lot of the stories of people feeling unworthy, feeling like they had quote unquote imposter syndrome, which in the book I actually say I needed to reframe it because it didn't make any sense. We were very highly accomplished and I started to call it imposter treatment because I felt as though all the things that I wanted to talk about in the book, the natural hair movement and our struggle with those types of microaggressions, us code switching, us not getting mentorship, us not feeling accepted, us not really understanding the power of our voices and having to mute our voices. That's why I called it I'm Not Yelling because so many of the women were sharing that they were going to spaces in a leadership role and at every turn, it seemed like they were not wanted as leaders, that people were questioning the validity of what they brought to the table. And as I started to think about my role it seemed clear to me that I needed to just not talk about African-American history, but also African-American present and particularly what was going on with Black women because Black women were exiting the workplace in record numbers. We were particularly impacted by COVID. Unemployment particularly impacted Black women during that time frame. A lot of Black women were are underemployed, not getting paid proper wages, weren't 
getting covered properly with healthcare, were reporting that they had higher levels of anxiety, depression, were feeling overwhelmed, but couldn't really put their finger on why. And I felt as though I had an obligation for me. I come from an English background. So I teach English in uh, the English department. Pretty much I can teach anything from English composition one to freshman to all the way up to senior level and even graduate level research writing. So I always feel like everything can be solved by looking at, well, who's who's researched this before? Obviously, if these phenomena are happening, somebody had to have known something about this previous to me so that I can com- com- compile or put into context or, or computate what is happening with Black women because we're all saying the same thing, but we need some thread to create a narrative that creates an explanation as to what this phenomenon is. And that's where I'm not yelling came from. I wanted to create evidence-based research surrounding these topics so that we could put it into context, both historically, because I talk about the historical aspects of some of these things like natural hair. These are historical things where the natural hair movement is not something that today we can't wear an Afro. It's actually something that originated in slavery, where Black women were forced to wear head wraps and Tignon Law in Louisiana, which said, your hair is a distraction. You have to cover it up because men, white men will lust after you. That's a lot of the stuff that we don't really know. And when we go into a workplace and particularly white women want to touch our hair or, or seem so amazed that our hair defies gravity, some of this is historical in nature. It's really not something that you can really unpack in that moment because a lot of it is beyond us. And if we don't understand the history of why these things have happened, then when someone is doing that and we brush it off like, oh, it's just innocent or they don't really know better, we really need to have a historical context in the fact that a lot of these things have happened over time. And I wanted to give Black women that context. Preach. I mean, (laughs) you know, it was interesting. I think we had chatted about this. um, The Crown Act. So the Crown Act has been passed in 18 18 states, states, but it is not, it hasn't, it hasn't made it to, I believe the the federal. It went to the Senate, Um, but it, it they couldn't get it passed. It went, it passed the House, but it could not pass the Senate. And maybe break down, define what the Crown Act is to our audience so they can be a little bit more woke and and understand why this is so crucial and how, I just don't understand how it's not passed in every state. Yeah, the the Crown Act really came out of, uh, there's a Crown Coalition. One of my sorority sisters, Adjua B. Asamoah, she's a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, is actually one of the co-founders of that Crown Coalition. And what they were really attempting to do is create federal legislation around the fact that racial hair discrimination should be illegal. A lot of people do not realize that on a federal level, so federal law does not prohibit racial hair discrimination, which means that you can go into a workplace and somebody can say locks are unprofessional and you would have to, you wouldn't have any kind of law that would protect you from that. You could probably file a lawsuit. You could say, you know, discrimination, but there isn't something specifically in federal law that says across the board, it is illegal for people to discriminate against you. So if they have a policy that says you can't wear locks, or they feel like um, if you have your hair in Bantu knots, that is unprofessional and it's not something that you're allowed to wear in the workplace. If they have a specific rule against um, wearing braids, 
um, against color hair in braids, whatever it might be, they can arbitrarily come up with something. We've seen uh, schools, high schools, where they say, well, a youth cannot participate in wrestling if he has locks. And we've even seen children getting their hair cut. Those kinds of things are not against the law because that discrimination is not considered illegal other than in those 18 states that have actually passed the Crown Act. And what it does is it just offers that protection where it says you, the, an employer cannot discriminate against you because of the way that you wear your hair naturally. And it should go without saying, but obviously that wasn't happening because we had several cases across the country where people were saying, my hair has nothing to do with my job. I, you know, if, even if you worked in a factory, you could say, well, you know, your hair's in the way. Well, I can put a head wrap on. Those are things that instead of saying that, the employers are saying, well, you are fired because you're not complying with our dress code. So that is the reason why the Crown Act was so important. And the the rationale for it not passing the Senate, we really don't understand why, other than it, they just feel as though it's not necessary. If you look at some of our legislators and some of the people in Congress, there's just really a lack of, we, it was so difficult just to think about getting things like the George Floyd Policing Act passed because, or anti-lynching law, John Lewis anti-lynching act, because a lot of times it's just like, what do you need that for? It's almost like a sense of, well, this is not necessary, so we're not going to pass that. So that's really where that sticking point comes in, where people just are not acknowledging our experience with natural hair discrimination, racial hair discrimination. Interesting. You know, you, you mentioned something where you say my hair has nothing to do with my job, right? Like you can you can perform the job well, you know, it doesn't interfere with what's in your brain as to why someone actually truly hired you for something. And I want to dive into that because what I see, you know, as a person that's in the tech world every day, um, I see phenomenal women of color, especially black women that are making it to director level. And, you know, there's a there's a certain point of like when you get to senior manager and you're trying to get into that next leap of director or VP, it's like a wall. And what I've seen on the other side, especially in the meetings, when you're actually hearing these people say, she's, she's perfect, but we're not going to promote her. I've been in, I've been in certain meetings, especially last year. That was mind blowing to be the only black woman in a room surrounded by peers that were white, Indian, and the way that they describe black women as to why they're not going to get promoted is phenomenal. Like I couldn't, I couldn't even fully, you know, put a, a straight face in there. But there would be a situation where a white man had control over if this black woman was going to get promoted, and his feedback was. She's perfect. You know, she works double on the presentation. You know, when she's presenting to the Googles of the world, like, you know, she's in professional services, you know, she just takes too much time on it. You know, like she'll go above and beyond. And after work, you know, she's trying to make sure that the slides are perfect. And I don't know if that's good manager material. <laughs> and I was, I was so mind blown because there's a room full of technically four white individuals. One was a woman, two was a white man. And then there's one Indian woman who's like everyone's boss. And then there's me, little old Kalina, black woman, who's made it to leadership. But, you know, I'm young. I'm trying to figure out, okay, you can't be feisty, Kalina. You can't say that's horrible. But how do you, you know, question that? So I, I asked this white man, I said, well, if you're not going to promote her, what's the feedback that you're going to give her? You know, I said, because black women do very well 
on feedback. If they if they haven't hit a certain threshold or they're not going to get something, as long as you have tangible feedback as to what they're lacking, they can receive it because then they go into action mode. It's like, okay, if someone says, hey, you're almost there, but you lack presentation skills, the next day a black woman will research the best presentation courses ever take that course. And the next quarter, she's going to be ready for you. She's going to practice. She's going to understand like where her weaknesses are. So then therefore you can't, you know, say, Hey, you're not qualified anymore. And he, and he says, well, I wasn't going to say anything. I was like, well, you're not going to tell her she needs coaching. I said, what type of leadership style would you like her to have in order for her to be qualified? Because she's taking on your best accounts. You know, she's doing everything that she can to get to that promotion. Fast forward, they promoted a white woman that was going on maternity leave. Uh, this black woman that did not get a promotion ended up taking on both of the accounts doing two loads of work while this woman was on maternity leave. So finally, when the woman returned from maternity leave, she then finally got her promotion, even though the white woman that got the promotion ahead of time had not the biggest accounts. You know, she just happened to mesh well with the hiring manager. And so the question that I have is because when I was talking to the black woman, I said, hey, you know, you're almost there. She was like, but what do I need to improve on? You know, she was like, what? Why didn't I get it? I said, well, to be honest with you, it's because you're too perfect. You spend too much time on your presentations. And she was like, well, I do that because I, we're dealing with the biggest accounts. I have the strategic accounts clean. And so I have to take the extra time because I don't want anything to go wrong. I want us to be overly prepared. I said, no, I totally understand. I'm just letting you know the feedback. And when I asked this white guy, I said, hey, I really think that you need to tell her, like, maybe she needs coaching, maybe leadership coaching. I was like, as your, as the manager, a person that has control over this woman's future, it's your duty to communicate why you're not going to promote her. And his whole face is just like, he had never been in a room where someone could stop him. You know, he was in a room where, to be fair, everyone else in that room, they saw no problems with what he was saying. You know, they thought, oh, yeah, whatever he says, if he doesn't want to promote her, we, we'll hop on board. And for the first time, I think, in history, in his management career, he had a woman that happened to be of color in a room with him that was his peer that challenged him. And I remember after the meeting, he slacked me saying, oh, Kalina, I, I really understand what you were saying. I'm going to talk to her about coaching. The problem is, were you going to do that beforehand? And the problem is, how did you determine that she wasn't qualified for the job just because she did too much work? You know, like, how do you go uh, up against that? You know, it's almost like if you're doing your job right and you're wearing, you know, braids. If someone says, hey, we wanted to promote you, but you don't have the look. How do you change that? Like, if you're good at data, if you're good at the, the logistics of your job, if you're hitting the job description perfectly and someone literally says, yeah, we want to hire you or we want to promote you, but you got to change your style. Like, the braids just not going to work. And fast forward, if you're someone that, Someone says, hey, you hit the job description, you're great management material, except you, instead of 20 minutes, you spend 30 minutes on a project. And that's just something that a manager style just won't work for us. How, how do we fight that? How do we go up against that? Because I see it more and more, especially in the tech industry. Yeah. And I think for me, when I wrote the book, a lot of it was not necessarily designed to really fight against an unfair or unjust system. I think at our, at the core, and we saw that from the murder of Tyree Nichols, 
There are some systems that are just not made for us where we shouldn't be. And no matter what we do, the system is going to do what it does. And that's 90 something percent of the time not going to be in our best interest. And when I say 90 something percent, I'm not even just arbitrarily making up a number. Because if you think about blacks in corporate spaces, we usually are somewhere between like 7%, something like that. I know in higher ed, faculty is like 7%, leadership's like three. In tech, black folk are like 3%. So we typically are anywhere, we're about 14% of the population, but only half of us are even getting a shot to be in some of these professional spaces. We're actually overrepresented in like retail and service related, you know, we're overrepresented usually in like K through 12 education, healthcare, frontline workers, though, not like doctors and things like that. So in my opinion, just from hearing that type of situation, that's a situation where that person made a decision that first was not even a good managerial decision in general, because if you're going to not promote someone or your job, I always feel like a manager's job. If a manager is not coaching his, his or her people to be leaders within the organization and coaching them to be in a point where they'll be able to aspire to whatever their goals are within the organization, that manager is not doing their job because a part of your job is to promote and, and help your people and nurture your people. It's not just for you to like the, the planning and logistics of whatever your product or service is. So already you're not a good manager, but then if you don't see that person's potential and when the person's going over and above, you see that as a flaw as opposed to a benefit. And then you don't even really have, a, you don't even have a tangible reason for why that's happening or how to make that person succeed or get better. For me, I feel like that would be a place that I would just not want to be anyway, because I feel as though sometimes what we're doing is we're trying to figure out psychology of people that really don't even understand themselves. If you think about even the idea of the fact that I would have to go into a workplace and try to understand somebody's state of mind, and I know that that state of mind is inherently wrong, it's almost a fool's errand for me to try to explain that to that person. A lot of times when people are doing things like that, it's, it's like I would like to point things out, but being very blunt and clear about why this is wrong and how this is wrong, because I feel as though sometimes people are getting a pass because they're acting like they're totally clueless. Because for me, if you're putting up a woman that works twice as hard and saying someone that is leaving for three months or whatever the time frame is for FMLA is going to be better, it's to me, that's almost inherent. That's nonsensical. So then I'm not going to, like Jay-Z said, if you argue with a fool, people won't know who the fool who the fool really is. I don't necessarily argue with people like that. I make a statement and show them the error of their ways. And then I just keep doing it the same way I would in the classroom. And maybe that's why I look at all this stuff differently. It's for me, I don't necessarily care if you're a manager. You could be the president. You could be the emperor. You could be the janitor. If you're doing something that's not right, I feel this inherent on me as a human being to say this is something that I don't like. I don't want this. I think this is wrong. 
This is morally and ethically not what I believe in. Once I make that statement, I can't change you. I can only change myself. And I find that when I'm correcting people in the C-suite, I don't really even care if they change or not, to be honest with you. <laughs> because nine times out of 10, they don't even think they need to change. So I do them like I do a student. I don't give it. Like, I, I'm the typical black teacher. I got my education already. So if y'all want to see here, cut the fool, I just sit here waiting for y'all to get done. And I will. I'll sit there and I'll just stand there until they finish. Because at the end of the day, I already got my degrees. I'm that black teacher that you got. Like, y'all want to cut the fool? Let me know when you're done. I'll be here on my phone. Because... I, I ain't spending my money. I'm getting paid to be here. You're spending your money. You're wasting your time. So my thought process in the workplace is the same thing. You can change or not change, but you're going to be uncomfortable because I'm uncomfortable. And I think that's really what set me apart when I came on LinkedIn in 2020. People are like, oh, you're saying all this stuff. You're not scared? Scared of what? What can they do to me? They could, I mean, what, what they're doing, they're already doing it, right? Because a lot of people don't like to speak up because they're like, uh, I'm going to put a target on my back. You already got a target on your back. You already have a target. There's no point in, in trying to get the target off. Look at look at what happened to that poor young man. Driving along, minding his own business. Somebody would say, well, he was he was doing the right thing. That shouldn't happen. He, he, George Floyd, they had all the reasons in the world why George, George Floyd was a career criminal. George Floyd was a drug addict. George Floyd passed a bad $20. All these things. But you got someone now... That is church going, skateboarding, mama's boy. He's the perfect person. And this should not have happened to him. But Obama was the perfect president. That should not have happened to him. What did they want? They want Trump. So that shows you that you're dealing with people that, to me, I almost feel like there's really no point in me arguing with you. I'm going to make a statement. Hey, that person should be promoted on their merit. And if we're talking merit to merit, this person deserves it more than that person. Now, what you choose to do is on you, but I've spoken my piece. And I do that in my corporate office all the time. I usually preface it by saying, I'm going to be the one that maybe you don't want to hear this, but this is what I think, and this is what I know. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if you want to not like it or like it, because I said it out loud. It's not even like, let's put all the cards on the table. I'm like, yeah, I'm when it comes to that. Let's call a thing a thing. Because now when you fire me, the first thing I'm going to say is, remember that time that I said such and such and such? Is this retaliation? Because it's just like, at that point, I feel like you've given me no choice. And it's almost like, it's almost like when you're playing spades. When you're playing spades, you're not supposed to talk across the board, right? But when people do crawl across the board, what do they say? Play to win, right? It's like, play your big joker. Play, play whatever you got, because I don't got nothing. And it's like, that's why you're not supposed to talk across the board. Because when somebody played a win, you're like, let me, what's in my hand that I can do? And that's where I'm at with it. It's almost like I got to play the win because there's no point in me holding back and throwing out like a heart. I got to throw my big joker down and slap it down on the table because you're coming with firepower and I'm supposed to what come with a heart. What is that going to do? Or come with a club? I got to come with a big joker or something because you already are coming for me, but you're doing it in such a sneaky way. And I feel like sometimes that's what's happening with Black folk. We tend to try to play it safe and I don't want to say nothing and this and that. But while you're saying nothing, they still going to do whatever they want to do anyway. So I feel for me, what I learned during COVID was when I didn't feel like I was getting proper feedback, when I felt uncomfortable, when I felt like this was a microaggression, I went straight to my boss and I said, this is a microaggression. And I can explain to you what a microaggression is. There's this, 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 and this, and it's making me feel uncomfortable. So can you address that in meeting when someone's doing that? And I would tell her straight up when people were doing it, 
I'm not going to deal with that person anymore. So now you're going you're gonna to have an HR issue on her hands. Because if that man comes to me and he keeps doing that, I'm going to have to go to HR because what you're doing is you're not protecting me. And I don't feel comfortable because that person has lied on me, has blah, 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 blah. I literally, this is a breakdown of the conversations that I have because I got to a point where we're already going through a pandemic where people are dying left and right. We're go- we just watched someone murdered in front of our eyes. What more can be done? Right. I mean, it's like James Baldwin already told us this when he went to Paris. He was like, I went to Paris with $40 in my pocket and I was not even scared because what else could happen to me that hadn't happened to me in America? And I feel like we almost have to get the spirit of our ancestors and really dig into that because a lot of us are walking around like, oh, I don't want to scare. I don't want mass to be mad. It's like, so what if uh, what? Like I will break them tools. Like I'm not gonna <laughs> let you just, just you're not gonna drive me crazy and then sit there like, why are you? What's wrong? Like, what do you think is wrong? <laughs> it's like you keep not promoting me. That's what's wrong. I mean, I will go to my manager. I've literally gone to my manager and be like, why am I not getting a promotion? Like I, I don't. I just feel as though Brad and Chad and and Becky and Karen. That's what they do. They will go to the. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like we say, oh, you know, they run into this. They do it. That's how they get what they want. But yet we're the ones that's working hard. Is oh, we don't want to say nothing. We gonna make them mad. They already mad because. And then the weird thing is, it's not even that they mad. They're just don't care. <laughs> if they were mad, I think I would even feel a little bit more like there's some emotion or something that's driving it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I can even understand it. When I lived in Gainesville, when I was a freshman at UF, they pulled the South Florida natives to the side because, you know, we from Miami, so we don't really understand this whole phenomenon. And they were like, this North Florida, it's redneck, it's this and that. They go, they come through campus on a pickup truck. They call you the N-word. Y'all not used to that. So y'all just let us, we, we from up here. We from the sticks. So we going to break it down for you and let you know. It, I would prefer that. Just slang the N-word at me because then you go about your business. I don't got to think about you for the rest of the day. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I just be like, clutch my pearls and just be like, that was messed up. I actually prefer <laughs> that than someone being all sneaky. And then when you're like, how come you let so-and-so get a promotion? So-and-so not even going to be here. But this lady to work her fingers to the bone and she's working too hard. Like, I will call you out on that. Because to me, I feel like that's worse than someone just slanging the N-word. You slang the N-word, what is that going to do to me? And that's why when they say, oh, you know, it's it's, it's it's just bad apples. It's people that just, you know, they they have bigotry in their heart. I would take that person over anybody. <laughs> Give me that person that's a bad apple. <laughs> that bad apple, what they going to do to me? They going to yell the N-word. And I would just be like, that was stupid. And then what do you do? You're just going to stand there and look dumb. Someone that's on your job that is constantly telling you they don't see color, but showing you the opposite in their actions, doesn't want to promote you, doesn't want to give you proper feedback, doesn't want to give you a straight answer. Those are the people that I'm more concerned about. And honestly, those are the people I challenge. I won't challenge somebody to say the N-word. I'm not going to engage with that because that's just dumb. But someone that's sitting there and telling me you can't get a promotion because you're you know, the, the, you're know, not a culture fit or I, I I feel as though you don't have leadership quality. So give me an action plan. For, that, that would be my, like, you're going to give me an action plan now. Because now that I didn't get the promotion, it's no point in me tiptoeing around and trying to avoid it because you've already targeted me and you've already hurt me by not giving me what I deserve. So how much more can mm-hmm. you really hurt me than by me actually calling you on the carpet? 
someone, um, Madison Butler, who does a lot on LinkedIn as far as advocacy for both Black as well as LGBTQ. Uh, we were talking about speaking gigs and different things as far as like accepting payment for contracts. And some of us that work in these spaces, we, we don't get paid what we're supposed to when we're doing speaking engagements or consulting. And I was talking about some of those challenges. And she said, well, the thing is that what you have to do is if someone's giving you a lowball offer, and she was like, this is advice that was given to her. So she wanted to pass it on to me too. She said, what you're doing is you're actually making it harder and you're hurting every other Black woman that comes into contact with that vendor. Now they'll think if you accepted that lowball offer, they will do that to every other Black woman. And we know as Black women that we're not getting paid the same because we're comparing notes and we're like, well, this is what I'm getting paid. But I know this other person that is a white DEI expert, for example, and speaking on the same topic, they're getting paid double. And what happens is we're being quiet, accepting less than what we're supposed to, not wanting to rock the boat, not wanting to challenge systems. And that's fine if you don't want to do that for yourself, but do you care anything about that next woman? And if you don't care about yourself and you just don't want to rock the boat because you don't want to see like a troublemaker, do you care about your sister? Do you care about your cousin? Do you care about your friends? Do you care about the other women in the Black community? Because a lot of times I think we think about our decisions in a vacuum. And in that moment, I might think, I don't want to say anything to that person or I don't want to go to my manager and talk about a promotion. It's uncomfortable for me to like question, but then what is the alternative? The alternative to sit in an environment where you're not being compensated properly. You're not being given guidance. You might leave. You might say, you know what? Forget that. I'm leaving. Then that person's going to harm the next person that comes in. So I almost feel like the it starts with us. A lot of these people that we're going to come into contact with, they're very used to privilege. And like you said, that person has not been challenged. That person has never had anyone say, hey, this doesn't really make sense. Can you give feedback? Can you explain why this is happening? Can you give a little bit more structure? So you're already pushing back on a narrative that clearly has not been challenged for him before. And that is what we need to do. We need to challenge when people are doing things that are inherently wrong. Just like if so, if he touched somebody's butt or he made an inappropriate comment about one of those women's breasts in the meeting, I don't think any of the women would have been like, shh, shh, let's not say nothing to HR because you know, we don't want to target on our back. Y'all would have marched straight to HR and been like, he made an inappropriate comment about gender. If he said something, if he made a comment about, you know, somebody from the LGBTQ community and said, there's certain things that I don't think is going to jive with culture, we would know that that's inappropriate. But him actually reinforcing a trope, which is what he did. Oh, she's working too hard. That's always a trope that's used against Black women. This stereotype of, mm -hmm. oh, this hard worker, but you don't really know how to lead. How is that quantified? And that person needs to be called out because that's how we change their behavior. Amen. I love that. And, you know, on that topic, I want to pivot a little bit because we, what I hear from you is we do need to vocalize and stand up for ourselves. And even if it doesn't make change at that present moment, the fact that we have vocalized it means that we have documented something. Yes. Which means that now they can't consistently do this. Yes. But my next question is, especially in tech world, black women, I seem it seems like they're the most unprotected. And when I when I say that, I say when I look at some of the other black male colleagues, they'll see something happening and they'll quickly turn their back. Or sometimes I've seen them being your worst enemy where you can't, you can't confine in anyone, um, especially not another Black man in the same corporate world as you, because they will use that for 
to gain their own promotion. You know, they will be buddy buddy with the oppressor and, you know, also talk badly about you to put themselves up. Have you seen that? And could you kind of talk to the audience about that? And how do how do we maneuver around that? We already have to figure out, hey, we're not yelling, we're just stating facts. Uh, we're hard workers, but it doesn't mean that we don't want to be the leader. But how do you go up against and protect yourself from your own people? <laughs> I think it's it's that question is like so so hard because we saw that again with Tyree Nichols situation that sometimes your own people can be your worst enemy. And that is the the fact that we're all functioning within a very racist society. So if we're all cogs in the wheel of a system that's inherently racist, it would stand a reason that a lot of us would, would we would internalize anti-blackness because we already have colorism. We already have this idea that proximity to whiteness really is a way for us to advance in our careers because those are the people that are in positions of leadership. I always feel as though for me, the, the the tipping point happened when I started to look outside of my workplace and look at, on a global perspective, who are the people that can help to support my journey. And a lot of those people were not inside my workplace. And I didn't look for them to be because almost sometimes in the workplace, you find that people are the only one or one of few. So you do get people coming from a, a poverty or lack mindset. When I say poverty, not like impoverished from a financial standpoint, because some of them are probably making really good money, but they always have this sense maybe from childhood and also from epigenics and just our own generational trauma that there's not going to be enough. So if that's if there were if I'm in fight or flight or survival mode and there's not enough, that means it's either you or me. It has to be me. That's how people think. So it's in their best interest and in this kind of like a natural response for humans to lash out against someone or not protect someone that might endanger their own well-being. And a lot of times that's whoever the weaker person is, which is why you see a lot of times black men are like, well, I got my stuff secured, so I can't protect you because in their head, they may be trying to protect their own family, their own livelihood, their own bills. So they're not going to stick their neck out necessarily. That's why organizations need to be more cognizant and aware. Leaders have to be informed. Education has to happen at a corporate level um, in terms of the C-suite and people have to be invested in how to change these structures and change these environments so that they are more nurturing until that does happen because we can't wait on that forever. I always encourage people to look for mentorship and look for support outside their organization. LinkedIn is a great place to start. Professional networking organizations are a good place to start. Um, social media is a great place. Um, uh, sororities and fraternities are a great place. Anywhere, community-based organizations, anywhere that you can get a support mechanism where you can have people that have your back because your organization is not the only organization. Even in tech, there are Black tech, um, Afrotech and different conferences you go to where you can meet people that are in your field. So I always tell people, don't look for people in your organization to help you only because I feel as though unless you have a very good relationship with some of those people, a lot of times everyone is kind of in that fight or flight mode within an organization. I've got the most confidence to really confront a lot of the things I was encountering within my organization from networking and creating a culture and promoting community outside my organization for other women that could give me tips, other black folk that could give me opportunities that could speak my name 
in those spaces. So I don't really have to worry about what's happening in my space. I think that's another problem too. We're so busy trying to hang on to what we got in one space and not looking at potentially other opportunities that might even be better for us that might not be as challenging or toxic as the environments that we're in. Mm, I like that. And I think you mentioned this earlier, you know, don't stay somewhere where they don't, where it doesn't serve you. That's right. Um, And I think that that's the opposite thing that's being communicated to us in the tech world, because you can definitely, and I've been an example of this. If I know that I can't get a promotion at one particular company, instead of getting irritated or sad about it, I go find another company and sometimes get between 20 to 30% more money because I decided to use that energy and put it into shaping myself up to be better for someone over here that's going to like me versus putting all that energy saying, well, I, you know, you're only going to, people should understand that if you're staying at a company and you're getting several promotions, there's a cap of how much they're going to give you. So 5% here, you know, at the max 9%, but year after year, if you are betting on that, sometimes only 2%, depending on how people feel. So you could be working and busting your butt for a year and a half. And when they do give you your promotion, that's maybe 3%. And, you know, let's not get into the layout of taxes. If you get bumped a certain way, you might, on paper, it might look nice, but you might make less because now you're in a different tax bracket. Um, But the thought process there, what I see in a lot of women, especially women of color, they want this longevity on their resume. You know, they want to say, hey, I've been here for X amount of time. So that shows that I'm a, a cultural fit and I, I'm there for the long run. But on the flip side, when I see, especially like my white colleagues that are in sales, they can be at a company for six months and, you know, keep hopping as an AE and they have no shame in it. But also they're they're succeeding too. They're, you know, if, if something's not working at a certain company or maybe they have the wrong in, in um, territory um, maybe their books, they know for a fact that they can't hit their number. Instead of, you know, wiping their tears, they go to the next company and they figure out how to kill it and how to be successful. I think that, and I love your perspective on this, making sure, especially Black women, don't stay too long if you know that you can't win. You know, like sometimes the writing is on the wall, but for some reason we have like this loyalty and I just, I don't get it. You know, like I've been guilty of this where I'm like, oh, I've been here so long and, you know, maybe I should just like um, bite the bullet and figure out how to be a better team player. And it's just wrong because you end up hurting yourself long term. That company is just going to replace you. You know, like as soon as you leave, I guarantee, hell, your job rec might even be up while you're still there. They're just patiently waiting. Um, so I want to give some examples to the Black women of knowing how long to stay, but also learning and knowing when to protect yourself, how to look out for yourself and grab that next opportunity and keep pushing. You know, like it's sad when I see people two to three years or four years or five years in the same company, same title, same money, and they're frustrated. You can see it in their faces where the life has been sucked out of them. But now they're so fearful to leave because they're comfortable. They might say, oh, my health care is like this. And, you know, or my, my equity, you know, the we call it the golden handcuffs, right? I got to do four year vesting. It's, I think that that's bull. You know, like you can totally go to another company and get even more and also probably get your sanity back. You know, like 
have an opportunity to meet nice people, you know, have an opportunity to like try something different and like be really good at it. Have someone give you a compliment for your work instead of telling you, oh, you, you were great, but not that great. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, that's typically what happens. And you, I mean, you said everything. I couldn't have even said it better. The last chapter in the book is called um, Pulling Up a Seat to the Table or Building Your Own Table or Building Your Own Empire, actually. So this idea that a lot of times we're not building our own tables or we're staying at tables. And uh, the Nina Simone quote, I've always embodied and, and learned just in my personal life, and, and I think it applies to professional life, is you've got to learn to leave the table when love's not being served anymore. This idea that as Black women... We've been kind of conditioned It's a part of probably culturally because of everything that's been placed on us in terms of, you know, historically having to uphold the black household because the black men's role has been emasculated, have been targeted in the criminal justice system, have not been able to make enough to support their family. Typically, black women have been able to get educated at higher rates, have been able to graduate at higher rates, which also is coming from historically black men being more under pressure and targeted because of the system. So a lot of times we've been the ones left holding the bag, raising the families. We even know that the, the welfare system, even in the beginning of black folks, um, segregation in America targeted families and just said, if you have a black man, even your husband can't even live there if you if you want to get welfare. So we know that black families have been targeted to be basically destroyed. So black women have been in a unique situation where we've been told, hey, button up, chin up. No, you don't got time for tears. You got to go in there and you got to get it. You got to you got to push through. And some of that, yeah, there are times you have to push through adversity, but sometimes you're in environments where you don't, you should not be there and you should not be just toughing it out because what you're doing is, like you said, you are hurting yourself. You're putting yourself in, even if you go somewhere and you make the same, if it's an environment that is more conducive to you and it's an environment that's going to be more nurturing, you're better off going there because you probably increase your life expectancy, increase your mental health and well-being put yourself in an environment where at least you'll be happy. But we've always been taught to chase that next promotion, chase that next pay increase, chase that whatever that is that's going to make you feel accomplished. But it doesn't necessarily take away the fact that you're in an environment that is inherently harmful for you where you should not be. Kanika Tolver, who I also interviewed for the book, one of the things she talks about is how as Black women, Black professionals, in general, Black women, obviously, this applies to as well, because we're talking about that aspect of it. We need to look at our job as a friend with benefits, not as a marriage. So you don't, if you're dating, you don't look at it like this is a long-term thing. This is just for as long as it meets both parties. If you're a contractor, there's no harm, no foul. If you're in an at-will state, they will get rid of you, and they don't even really necessarily legally have to give you a reason. So there is this sense, I think, now that we're seeing a lot of tech giants laying off people and you find out the morning of when you check your email, there is a sense that that company loyalty and, and being really like, oh, I'm going to be loyal. They're not loyal to you. You have to do what's best for yourself. You have to do what. And I think that's another reason why the mentorship is really important. A lot of Black women are doing things that for their career is not good for them because they're going based on their parents' advice and that advice is outdated. Or they're going based on what they should have did when they went into college. But now that you're 10 years into your career, that doesn't make any sense anymore. So it's really important 
for us to be realistic and, and not buy into some of these, oh, we're a family, you know, you should stick it out. You should be loyal because like you said, if, if you don't come into work tomorrow, they will post your position and they won't think nothing about you. They will just go on with life and you're, you're there like, oh, I thought, you know, I had invested so much time here and I thought they would be loyal to me. Obviously not because you see Google and Amazon and Meta and all these companies laying off thousands of people, the loyalty really goes out the door. So you have to have that same mind frame of I'm here for now, if this place does not serve me, then I need to tap into my network of women, black men, mentors, whoever I have in my community. And I need to start looking at other opportunities rather than being uh, loyal to a company that is not loyal to you. Mm-hmm. I think that goes back to <clears throat> make sure you don't play the fool. I think that this whole loyalty thing <clears throat> can definitely put you in a place where you will look like the fool if you don't step up or you know in my head I just I tell people recognize game when it's being dealt to you you know like play your cards right and when someone or when you understand how a company is going I I talk to a lot of people that have experienced layoffs and they're so hurt you know I I look at their LinkedIn messages and it's like day two or like a month later and I'm this and and I'm just like who cares like stop saying that say what you want you know like Talk about your next step. Talk about your skill sets. Talk about why you were really good at your job and how it was unfortunate that this company's finances weren't right. So therefore your job was taken. Like I think that people need to turn the analogy and actually understand that layoffs has nothing to do with you. If anything, it has everything to do with the company and and how they need to shape up before they no longer exist or you know, why they need to report certain things to to shareholders, you know, if that's the case. Um, and I, I see so many people that are in this world where they truly believe, oh, I got laid off because it must have been me. How, how could this have happened? And it's because maybe they don't have the mentorship or, you know, sometimes, you know, as a millennial, people are, ex- are experiencing their first ever layoffs, I would say. Right. Um, especially in the tech industry, it's been a solid, you know, almost 10 years where tech has been booming. So no one has actually seen this before. Right. Um, and so it's like a shocker. So, you know, I speak to a lot of people that they're not millennials or they're later millennials. So it's not their first hoorah. If anything, most people are saying when I graduated college, Kalina, like I was, I graduated in a recession. So I know exactly what it feels like. Um, and you know, when you talk to people that have been there, done that, they're like, this is not the first rodeo. It won't be your, your last one. Like just keep going. But when you're talking to like new millennials where they're like, let's say 27, 20, 28 or 26, that's like the sweet spot where they're just like lost, like very lost. I mean, I've, I've wiped some tears and I'm like, come on, pick yourself up. It's okay. I've, I've seen women in the park. I kid you not, Liz, I was walking my dog. At Lake Merritt in Oakland, uh, probably like a week ago, and I saw a woman that was used to work at a different company, and she was sitting at having like a not even a picnic, but she was sitting in the grass, and she was all sad. And I was like, "Hey, oh my God, how are you? Like, what's going on?" She was like, "I'm doing the best that I can." And I'm like, "For what? Like, you're still breathing. You still have your mind. <laughs> you're still breathing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you're able. You know, you got your health and." I, it, it took me for a ride, right? Because I'm sitting there like, you can't be so sad too long. You know, like there's a time to like accept what has happened, but you got to learn how to execute and figure out other opportunities. True. You know, like it's a, I try to explain to people, you know, when adversity happens to you, that can be a blessing. It just depends on what you want to do with it, how you're going to look at it. 
But at the end of the day, like reach out, develop a network, develop a community, right. you know, like I've LinkedIn is a wonderful thing right now. You can, you can message anybody, you know, I've messaged you just a cold email, you know, where I'm just like, Hey, I read your stuff. Oh. I see you have a book coming out. I want to record you. Next thing you know, it's like, Hey, yeah, come it. on as a co-host. Right. Do you want to do this, this, and this? But the, the point of it is like, we are living in a world where we have access, you know, like access, like there's no tomorrow. You know, if you want an introduction, if you want to be referred, if you want to start a new business, if you want to figure out how to raise equity and how to, you know, start your own business, you can take a course, you know, or you can message the CEO of a VC and sometimes he may actually respond to you. It's just the point of trying and not getting so stuck in your own shit, I would say, like, make sure you don't get stuck. I agree. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. The the attitude that we have, I think just really reaching into ourselves and figuring out how to be strong within ourselves. And that's not to negate the fact that we have overcome so much and we have challenges that are really difficult, but at the same time, also just strengthening our internal core and understanding it's not us. It's not something personal. Like you said, it's not something that's sufficient in us. We're more than worthy in every way. So we have to treat ourselves like that. It's just like being in bad relationships. You're not going to say, oh, you know, and some people do. We do. You start internalizing. That's what's wrong with me. It's not you. If, if people don't see your greatness, then you go and be with someone, you know, that does, that does value you. And we have to look at every interaction like that. Not it's something broken with us. We deal with broken people, broken organizations, broken friendships, broken whatever, whoever we, you know, interact with. But we have to make a choice. We can't choose for that other person. They have to have their own journey. So we have to make sure that we're being intentional and taking care of ourselves. I think that's really the most important thing. Yes, mic drop. And on that one, Liz... As we close out, all I hear is make sure you take care of yourself. And I would say, how can people buy your book? Where can they find it? How can they represent? How can they get in contact with you? Give us the juice. Yeah. I mean, I'm mostly active on LinkedIn. So the best place to connect with me is there. Uh, The book is available everywhere. It's on Amazon. It's also in Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, Pretty much anywhere that you can get books online, you will be able to order it or it's in some stores as well, depending on uh, the local store that you're in. And then I mean, just really continuing just to check me out on uh, social media, on the LinkedIn platform and and supporting me would be the best way to do that. When people buy the book, post about it, do a nice review, whatever the case may be. So yeah, I appreciate everyone that has done that. And I appreciate you for inviting me. This has been really fun, this conversation. Always deep conversations that we have. So (laughs) this is definitely one for the books as well. Definitely. One last thing. I know that you have your academy. Um, For our allies out there and for individuals that just want to know more about their own history, how can they get involved in your academy? Great question. Black History Culture Academy is, uh, and it's basically www.blackhistorycultureacademy.com. That is my online learning platform. It has about 40 plus, almost 50 courses in Black History Culture, African American History and Culture African History Culture and DEI. And if you just go to the website, you can subscribe. It's like 
Netflix subscription, like $14.99 a month. I have like a couple hundred students that are enrolled and people constantly enrolling, you know, taking courses here and there or subscribing for the year. So people can do that too and learn more about these courses I developed myself just from my experience as a, a curriculum designer. And I really wanted to just create something as a resource so people can check that out as well. Yes education is key. That's right. Before we close out, any last jewels you want to leave to the audience? I think the the biggest thing is just be aware of the strength of your story. Be aware of the strength of your voice. I think for a lot of us, especially right now, we feel confused. We feel overwhelmed. We feel hopeless, maybe somewhat helpless. We just are feeling like we don't understand why things are happening. And I think it's really important to hold space for those conversations and really lean into the fact that we have so much strength and power, resiliency in who we are at our core. So we really have to embrace that, embrace each other and move forward in a way that's going to be really beneficial for us as a community. We've overcome so much and I know that we have the strength and power to get through this. So just really lean on each other. That's really what I would say. Awesome. And with that, thank you for tuning in, Liz. If you like what you hear, everyone, be sure to subscribe to Unapologetic. Stay tuned.